This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Okay, Colossians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 6 through 15. Listen to God's Word. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Lord, we just read of your triumph over all the powers And so we pray that you would triumph right now as we open up your scripture. Would you be clear and present and speaking to us as you do by your spirit today and show us a grand vision of Christ that you would guard our eyes from looking in other places and that we would cherish our Savior. Lord, we pray for that today. Do that work in our hearts, all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we're a few messages into Colossians, if you haven't noticed, I would say it's tough sledding. It's uh, pretty thick. It's pretty dense. There's a lot of terms that we're not familiar with. Uh, it's, it's quite theological. We just did a, uh, most of the Bible's narrative. Last book we did was Nehemiah. It's narrative. It's like a story. It's uh, this happened and this happened. It's very easy to follow. Uh, this, like every verse, there's probably a term you're like, what does that mean? And maybe multiple terms. And I'm with you on that. So I, I get that. Uh, but I'm going to try to make this clear, as clear as I can today. And kind of the, the motive, the purpose behind this passage just fell together for me. Actually, last night, this just all kind of uh, came to me, this, this how it all falls together. Um, because right now we're getting into the section of the book where he's beginning to speak about the challenges the Colossians are facing, the sort of teachings that are out there that are tempting them to compromise. And what all fell into place for me last night was I was thinking about a book I recently read, and the book was on marketing. And I don't know a lot about marketing. I I try to read various topics I want to learn about, and so I don't really know a lot about that. But I read this, and I learned something. Whenever I see an ad now, I know what they're thinking. So, uh, So I did learn something. Uh, but what I learned was the power of marketing is to convince us that we need something else, that we need something more, 
that we need something newer, that we need something better than we currently have. And I'm not being critical of marketing because you can market and be completely honest, and many of you are in that line of work. So I'm not critiquing, this is not a critique at all. Marketers communicate that you need their product or you need their service for two primary reasons. One is to survive, and the other is to thrive. And so there's a presentation, generally, this is generally speaking, that would show that, hey, to make it, to survive, you need this service or this product. You need it maybe physically for survival or you need it for emotional survival, psychological survival, aspirational survival, uh, or you need it to thrive, not just to survive, but to thrive. In other words, your life will be better. You will, be, you will flourish if you have this product or this service. So marketing doesn't work with a person who says, I have all that I need. I am entirely, 100% complete in my life. I need nothing at all. Why would I want what you have? Why would I need that service? Why would I want, why, my life could be not an ounce better than it is right now because I'm entirely, completely one blob of satisfaction, okay? I am happy with my life. But since that person doesn't exist, marketing works uh, to highlight for us what we may need. Um, So in the passage, what Paul is doing is he's teaching the Colossians that they have in Jesus spiritually all that they need. He's trying, to go, he's trying to guard them from the alluring idea that, hey, they need to supplement their faith in Christ with something else. We're going to see today and next week in particular as we move on in the book that the Colossians are tempted to think, they're, they're hearing voices that are saying, you need something more than Jesus to thrive. You need something more than Jesus to be complete. The language of complete and fullness, that we're going to see that in the passage, that you're going to need something more than Jesus to really be, he's good, but you're going to need something more to be full. They're being told that. They're hearing, if you really want to flourish, you need to engage these certain religious practices, or you need to embrace and buy into this philosophy There are religious voices that are even saying in the Colossians day and in our day, there are voices that are saying, Jesus is great. You need him. Now, let me tell you the real secret for breakthrough. I've got something else to supplement what you need, what you have in Jesus. So this text is really needed. Even though it's complex, it's really needed for us. Because if I could put it in very basic terms, what Paul is saying in these nine verses that we just read, what God is saying in these verses is stick with Jesus because you cannot improve on the gospel. Stick with Jesus because you cannot improve on the gospel. So I'm going to look at both of those ideas. First of all, verses six and seven, stick with Jesus. We need this reminder. Verse six and seven, he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He's calling them back to the basics. 
He's saying, don't be enamored. Don't be drawn by people with fancy lingo or clever sayings or mystical experiences or religious sort of ideas of what you need to do for some kind of radical self-denial on their program that somehow that will commend you to God. That will save you. Don't listen. Go back to the foundation. And as you received Christ Jesus, walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, he's taking them back to conversion. We need to be, if you're a Christian, you need to be taken back to conversion regularly. That's why we share the good news. The good news that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose, and that he has forgiven us, given us eternal life, and he reigns today. We talk about that every single Sunday because that's all we have to offer. And that's more than enough. That is the good news. And so he's saying, go back to the good news. How did you receive him? Well, you received him as ruler, as Lord. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's saying, as you receive Christ the Lord, how did you receive him? Well, I was over here in darkness, and he transferred me to the kingdom of his dear son. He took me from death and brought me into life. He took my blinded eyes and opened them, and I came into a whole new way of living. I was in this kingdom of darkness, really a kingdom of death, going nowhere. And he brought me into a kingdom of life in Jesus Christ. Go back and remember that, Paul's saying. And he says, get rooted in that. Walk in that truth. Get rooted in that truth. When the Bible usually, when it uses the verb walk in a passage like this, it's a metaphor for live. So live in him. Take your journey in him, it's saying. Walk in him. He is over your life. You've received him as Lord. You're in a different realm. You're in his kingdom now, is what he's saying to us. And how did you receive that? By grace. He's in essence saying you received Jesus as Lord. He moved you, he's already said, from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his son. How did the move take place? Because you came up with a bunch of religious activity to do that somehow impressed God. And God said, wow, let's get you over on this team. Absolutely not. You weren't moved from darkness to light from this kingdom to that kingdom because of your practices or because of your secret knowledge or any of the kind of things they're being tempted with. It all happened by grace. So don't leave grace. Stick with Jesus, he's encouraging them. This is so important. Uh, So important that they can consider him, that they live in his power, in his life. You are walk in him. That is live connected to Jesus. Live In faith of Christ, go deeper with him like a tree. He says you're rooted. Make your roots, don't get uprooted and go somewhere else. Rather, get deeper roots in Jesus Christ. And we do that through reading his word and through what we're doing right now, worshiping him, meditating on him, living all of our life daily to the glory of God, seeking to serve him in our work and our recreation and our families and all of our life. That's what he's talking about. Don't be looking, you're in him, so don't look outside of him for something else. Be built up. It's a, it's a language of a building. You have a foundation in him. So don't look for another foundation. Build your life on Christ. Go back to the basics. Jesus, Bible, gospel, spiritual vitality is found in not secret knowledge, but in the basics. Because you can't ever go deep enough in Christ. You can't ever grasp fully the wonder of the cross and resurrection. You can't get beyond the glory of Jesus to, oh, now I'm onto something really amazing. It doesn't get more amazing. That's why we need the basics. 
You know, I didn't, I didn't mention this earlier, and it's not on the form, but Caleb, our intern, is a marathon runner. And uh, someone laughed. No, he really is. Did somebody laugh? <laughs> Sorry, bro. I thought I heard a laugh. No, he really, he's like really good at it. But can you imagine saying to someone, yeah, I'm going to be in a marathon. Really? Well, how's the training going? How's the running going? Oh, I don't run. Well, you know, that's what I would probably say. But uh, I don't run. I'm going to be in a marathon, but I don't run. You would think, thinking, oh, man. You've you got to have the basics of just running daily and increasing your stamina and endurance and distance to prepare for a marathon. If you don't run, you're not going to be in a marathon, at least not as a runner. Uh, you're going to be sucking wind at about 100 yards into it, ready to pass out if you don't train. You've got to go to the basics. Run regularly. Increase your uh, endurance and uh, stamina. Prepare. If you're going to be a part of something like a marathon, it's the basics. It's regularity. Running's not complicated, uh, but it's getting out there and doing it regularly to train yourself for endurance. And so is the Christian life. We go deeper in Christ. We build on his foundation. There is this desire to always move on to something newer and better. And that is what they're hearing, and that's not what we want to do. Give your attention to Christ, and if you do, you will abound. That's the last thing he says, abounding in thanksgiving. That the heart that knows Christ overflows with thanksgiving. So grace produces gratitude in us. Live a life where you walk in him and where you're living a life of thanks to Jesus Christ. That's what he tells them to do. If you're not living gratefully, you're not satisfied in Christ, then you're going to be discontent and looking for something else. But find your contentment in him and it will overflow with thanksgiving. So stick with Jesus, he says. Secondly, and this is the other point, he says you can't improve on the gospel. Though He didn't say it exactly, but I think that's what he means in verses 8 through 15. So in verse 8 he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits um, of the world and not according to Christ. Okay, that's a little bit complex there. First of all, when Paul uses the word philosophy, he doesn't use it uh, in the same way we do. He uses it more broadly. So when we think of philosophy, you know, don't be taken captive by philosophy. If you're in a philosophy class at college, you're not sinning. Philosophy isn't bad as a discipline in and of itself. He uses the word much more uh, broadly. We think of Aristotle and Plato and perhaps various Greek philosophers But as we move on later into chapter 2, we're going to see that when Paul says don't be taken captive by philosophy, he's describing something that sounds much more religious than it does philosophical. So he's going to go on and talk about things. Don't be captivated by this philosophy, which tells you to recognize Sabbaths. We're going to see that next week. Recognize new moon festivals uh, that calls you to make judgments about religiously what can you eat or drink. It it sounds much more, as you read on, he's talking much more about what we might call legalism, that to be accepted by God, you have to do these certain religious duties rather than trust Christ. And so as you move on in the passage, what we see is that what he's really talking about is religious practice. Don't be taken captive by empty deceit, a philosophy that calls you to religious practice as a way to be right with God. Now, secondly, what you see is there's something mystical behind a lot of what he's writing here, what he's addressing Because it's also true that this word philosophy was used in Paul's day to point to mystical or magical experiences. As a matter of fact, a magician in Paul's day was also referred to as a philosopher uh, because there were certain mystical practices they believed that they could do. So when Paul tells them not to be captive by philosophy, 
taken captive, and it's good they're not. He says, don't get taken by cat, don't be taken captive. What he's saying is, don't stray into religious or spiritual beliefs and practices that aren't connected to Jesus. Don't go off into a bunch of practices that are a substitute for Jesus. Uh, you can't improve on the gospel, and so there's nowhere else to look and nowhere else to go. These things are not from God. They are human tradition, he says. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So human traditions are things that uh, these various false teachers are telling them they need to experience. If you want to have fullness, if you want to thrive spiritually, these are the things you need. And he's saying, no, those are just empty human traditions. There's also something spiritual about them. The empty human traditions are inspired by darkness. He uses the word elemental spirits. It's, It's likely referring to spirits, spiritual beings or demons, we might call them. Bible calls them. The ESV study Bible, when it describes this term, and I recommend the ESV study Bible, it's a great tool to help you understand certain parts of scripture like this. What does the word elemental spirits mean? Uh, The ESV study Bible writes this. It says the term elemental spirits was widely used for spirits in Persian religious text, magical papyri, astrological documents, and even some Jewish text. Paul is likely using it here to refer to demonic spirits. It is the equivalent of rulers and authorities in verses 10 and verses 15. Although the false teaching is handed down as human tradition, he said that, it's human tradition, even though the false teaching handed down as human tradition, it can ultimately be traced to the influence of demonic forces. So what he's saying as we go through here and see they're being called to legalism, that even though some of the practices on the surface could appear good in some way, maybe certain kind of dietary things for their faith or something like that. Maybe that appears good on the surface. He's saying it could actually have darkness behind it. It could actually have demonic power behind it. Um, My friend Cleve, I don't know if he's in the service or the first service. Cleve, I didn't see him. Cleve Powell is a friend of mine. He has been my study buddy a little bit in the book of Colossians and uh, has uh, helped me doing a little bit of study and we swapped ideas and uh, he's... uh, been very helpful to me. And he did some study on this term, elemental uh, spirits as well. And he mentioned to me this, I wrote it, or actually sent it an email. I'm going to quote him. Uh, You never know, you send me an email, you might get quoted in a sermon, if it's this articulate anyway. So he said, asceticism and abstinence can be as deceitful and demonic as pagan mysticism and unrestrained hedonism. What he's saying by that is what I think is going on here. We tend to think what's demonic is crazy wild. So demonic would be something that's, you know, having spiritual experiences or, or, or seances or some kind of animal sacrifice to Satan or something really dramatic like that. And certainly it could be. But what could also be demonic is not just pagan mysticism, but certain abstinence or asceticism. That is putting rules on myself that God doesn't put on me, but embracing those rules as a way to make myself right with God when he never said that makes me right with him. So what I'm doing is substituting my rules and my practices for what Jesus did on the cross. And anytime you take something and substitute it for Jesus, that's demonic. 
That is, that is from the enemy who wants us to get our eyes off Jesus and get our eyes on secret formulas and this practice and this mystical thing or this rigorous thing that will make you right with God or whatever it is. He wants us to substitute anything. The enemy wants us to substitute anything for Jesus Christ. And so that's what's going on here. At the core, it's minimizing Jesus. Now look at, here's a specific way they were minimizing the work of Jesus, these false teachers. In verse 9 and 10, we, uh, I'm sorry, that's going to be the next section. I jumped ahead. I'm just so excited. Uh, let, me, let me read verses 9 and 10 before we go on to 11 and 12, which will talk about the substitute. Verses 9 and 10, it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Uh, and so it's saying here, this is one of the clearest verses in all the Bible that says Jesus was truly God. Truly God and truly man. We know Jesus was a man. But he was also truly God. It says, the fullness of deity, deity means God, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. So Jesus' physical person, he was and is God. That is an amazing statement. And you've been filled in him. He is the head of all rule and authority. So he rules over all. How did you receive him as Lord? He Verse 6, he rules over all. And you're in him. You're connected to him. So in essence, he's saying, if God, all, if you're connected to God Almighty, Jesus Christ, what else do you need? Where else are you going to look? And then we see that some of the, one of those substitutes that was being offered was the need for circumcision. Now, if you don't have any biblical background, it might sound unusual that that we'd be a discussing this in church, but b that this would be part of the Bible's text. And the reason is because circumcision was a primary sign. Uh, of, for a Jewish male, that he was part of Israel, that he was a Hebrew. So it was a, a mark uh, that set apart Jewish men. And the point that he's making here is that the Colossians, many of them are Gentiles. And so someone was telling them, yes, believe in Jesus, that's great. But if you really want to be part of the people of God, you've got to do this other religious act, which is uh, males would need to be circumcised. And what Paul is going to say here is there's no benefit for you Gentiles. You get no benefit by going and getting circumcised. You get no benefit with God because you already received the only circumcision that matters. And that is a, what he calls a spiritual circumcision. So we've told these Gentile males, you don't need to go have this because you have already had spiritual circumcision to which those adult males probably said, Praise God. Uh, I, don't know how that, I don't know how that heresy caught on anyway to, for adult men who knew what was going on and not babies because Jews were circumcised uh, as infants. So verses 11 and 12, this is what he says. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So this isn't religious physical circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So he's saying in Christ, you have a spiritual circumcision. What is that? It's that you believed in Jesus. And when you believed in Jesus, your mark that you were part of God's family was not physical circumcision, but baptism. Because you were joined with Christ, you were baptized, you, were, uh, you, were, uh, you died with Christ, and you were raised to new life. In baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith. 
you died to your old life and you came alive to a new life in Jesus Christ. So how, do you, how are you marked as the people of God? Not through physical circumcision, but through faith. What marks you as the people of God is faith in Christ, new life in Christ, and your baptism symbolizes that. That's why we baptize believers uh, here, because we baptize believers because the, the mark of joining the people of God is, not, is a spiritual circumcision, which he says is baptism in which you were raised through faith. It is after faith in Christ that we are then baptized. So you're not, he's telling them, you're not qualified by physical circumcision. You're qualified by what Jesus did. And your baptism reminds you of that, so remember that. Listen, few of us are tempted to go back to Jewish uh, practices, perhaps, as they were. So you you may hear this, but many of us would not be hearing anyone calling us back to Jewish practices if we really want to know God and really want to follow Jesus. Um, However, I would say that even though we believe that Jesus atones for our sins and forgives us, we still can sometimes think, we would never say this, but we can sometimes think in a subtle way, I need more. See, they're saying, hey, if you really want to experience acceptance by Jesus, it's good to have faith, but you need more. You need circumcision. So for us, sometimes we can say, hey, I need more as well. So this is how it works sometimes. We say, yes, I know I can't, I I don't cover my own sins. Jesus covered my sins. So I'm going to confess my sins. But to be really forgiven, to be really accepted, to have Jesus really love me, I need to feel bad for a while. It's almost like you're in spiritual timeout. Like after a while, I hope I do my really bad sins early in the week. Then when I come on Sunday, I'll have had enough time to get back in God's good graces. As opposed to the moment I confess, the forgiveness of Christ is being applied to me. It was already applied before I even confessed by faith. But we can want to feel bad. Or we can say, you know what? I did that. It's really bad. I probably need to do some good deed to kind of balance it out and make up for it. I probably need to do some real kind of act of radical self-denial. Now, there's a place for self-denial appropriately. But I'm going to do some radical self-denial to pay God back for my self-indulgence. So I did this really bad thing. But if I really want to be accepted, if I want to feel the forgiveness of God, then I'm going to have to do something on my own so that I'm really aware that now he's forgiven me. Do you see that's the exact same thing that's going on here? That's saying you need Jesus's cross and resurrection. Oh yeah. And you need to do something too. And some of us may have been raised in an environment where that was the case. To really be forgiven, you need to say certain prayers or, uh, you know, do certain things religiously to be accepted by God. But we are accepted by God. We are made right with God. We are declared righteous with God. We are affirmed by God by nothing we do and by in everything that Jesus Christ did for us. That's that's what he's talking about here. We we sometimes will uh, can can do this in various ways as well. We can say, "Hey, I don't think God really approves of me unless I do certain things or unless I avoid certain things." So unless I parent my child or perhaps even educate my child in a certain way, I don't really feel like God would be looking on me with uh, acceptance. Because my identity is in what I'm doing here with my kids rather than my identity being in Christ. 
or I'm going to avoid certain things, maybe certain forms of entertainment and certain forms of entertainment to walk in godliness probably should be avoided, but I'm going to avoid all this over here because my identity is I don't do that, I do this, and that's what sort of makes God happy with me. My identity is not that. My identity is in what Christ has done for me, or I'm going to dress in a certain way, or I'm going to spend my money in a certain way, or I'm, I'm going to ad- only identify with this political philosophy because part of being right with God is identifying with this political approach or this attire or this something external that's sort of, if I do this, then God's really going to be pleased with me now. Instead of saying, God is pleased with me foundationally because of what Jesus did. I'm adopted into his family because of what Jesus did. I'm accepted and loved because of what Jesus did. And that frees me now to want to obey him rather than get those in reverse. If I do certain things that I think will make him happy, then he accepts me. That's the wrong way. You can't improve on the gospel. And when I'm talking this way from this text, I'm not, I'm, not talking about, I'm not saying that obeying God is irrelevant. That's what I'm not saying. I'm just saying your obedience to God will never make you right with God. You are made right with God because of what Christ has done. You're declared forgiven. You're made a new person. His spirit lives in you. And then based on that acceptance, now you're ready to begin to follow him by grace and seek his power to obey his word. So his, the work of Christ pardons us and then it empowers us. But if we think we're going to do certain things to win the pardon or do certain things to earn his acceptance, that's wrong. That's saying Jesus plus something else. We're going to say Jesus plus nothing is makes me right with God. Well, the section closes uh, with him explaining what Christ has done for us on the cross. Verses 13, 14 and 15. So in verses 13, he says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made us a lot, made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay. A trespass is a word that means sin. So if you see a no trespassing sign and you cross the line, that means, well, that means you trespass. So that's what he's saying here. If God's law, God's word is the line. If you step over it and do what you want, that's uh, a tre- you're trespassing. You're crossing where you're not supposed to be. And so the word trespass, when you see that in the Bible, it just means, it just means sin. So he's saying we were dead in our trespasses and God made us alive in Christ. Jesus died for us. We were buried with him. We're raised with him. We're united with him. He made us by, by faith. He made us alive in Christ. So this is a powerful statement to them because he's saying you move from death to life. How can you improve on that? How are you going to do something to supplement that? How in the world are you going to add to I was dead and now I'm alive? Look what Christ has done for you. Walk in the way you received him. Be rooted in him. Verses 6 and 7 again. He's given you resurrection life. Keep walking in him. Keep going deeper with him. You had no spiritual life, and now you do because he gave you new life, and he forgave all your sins. You didn't earn your new life, and you didn't earn your forgiveness. That's a gift. So he's wanting to highlight, in these last three verses, he's wanting to highlight what he's saying is he's not spending as much time talking about the false teaching, the philosophy, the empty deceit, the law, which said you have to be circumcised to really be right with Jesus. He's not really going, he's not going to end with that in this section. He's going to end with the glory of Jesus. So then why would you want that when you have forgiveness of sin and new life because of him? 
Verse 14, he says, he has canceled our record of debt. By, verse 14, by canceling, he's forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see that, verse 14, nailing it to the cross. In Paul's day, just like in ours, if you were in debt, you received a statement of indebtedness. We call that a bill. Okay, and so he said, you are in debt to God. There's a record of debt against us with legal demands. So God has legal demands. We're in debt to God uh, legally. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means that every one of us have not fulfilled God's legal demands. God's legal demands are, I created you and you're required to obey me perfectly. Loving God with all your heart, all your life, loving your neighbors yourself, putting God above all others, worshiping him exclusively, living for him exclusively and, and not for anything else. And yet the reality is we all live lives where it's easy to chase all kinds of things and pursue all kinds of things for comfort and uh, satisfaction and pleasure aside from God and his word. And so we've all done that. We have not done what the creator requires. And so there is this debt to his holiness, this debt to God. God says, these are my legal demands. You have not met them. So you are, uh, you know, you, you, are, um, you are in debt. You are against what I have required of you. And so it just adds up and up. Every time we've not obeyed God in word, thought, deed, intention, every time we've omitted something he did call us to do, we failed to do that, that has increased our debt. And it just goes on and on. If you've ever, you know, it, it, think of a bill. If you've ever had a, uh, a, a debt, a bill that comes, maybe a credit card bill that over the years has perhaps grown. If you've ever looked at those charges, uh, the debt against you and go, I can't pay this off this month. I can't pay this off in two months. Maybe you say, I can't pay this off in a year. I don't know how I'm going to pay this off in five years. And, and the feeling of overwhelm, look at all that I owe. So that maybe when the envelope comes in the mail, you don't even want to open it. Or the email comes or the, 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 the notification on your app or whatever you get your bills. You get that, you don't even want to see it. Because you know when you open it, your heart is just going to fall because I've got this huge debt that I'm responsible for that I could never meet. Maybe you've had that experience. If you could take that experience or imagine that experience, if you've not had it, if you could take that experience and magnify it infinitely, that's how we would feel. We wouldn't even be able to stand if we could see what our debt was and is against the holy God of the universe. Now, think to back to the, crea- to the crucifixion of Jesus. When Jesus is crucified, there is a sign nailed to the cross. And the sign says, King of the Jews. Why? Because when you were crucified for an act against the state or a crime, your, uh, your crime was, um, was put up on the cross with you. So in his case, his crime against Rome was that he was claiming to be a king. And so that was viewed as an insurrection against Caesar. And so the legal call, the legal charge against him is that. Um, and so he is executed in the, in the view of Rome, he's executed for that. But what's really happening is that 
our crime is posted on the cross with Jesus. He says he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Uh, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our record of debt, our bill, our statement of indebtedness, the proof of what we owe to a holy God is nailed on the cross with Jesus so that though he's innocent, he's dying for our crime. That's what's really That's what he's really dying for from God's point of view, from our point of view. Jesus is executed to pay the debt we owe that we never could pay. You can never make it up to God. I can never make it up to God. But Jesus himself took our place. What are we possibly going to add to that? How in the world are you going to add to I have a debt that I cannot in eternity pay off and God himself, the one that that the debt is to, the one I owe is going to come and pay off my debt, not by just wiping it clean, but by becoming a man and dying the most excruciating death imaginable. Not just the physical crucifixion, but the fact that our debts are placed upon him. And God the Father judges the Son, pours out his judgment on his own Son. Jesus endures the payment for our sins upon himself. How in the world are we going to improve on that? You cannot improve on the gospel. You cannot supplement that kind of grace. That kind of grace is not lacking. That kind of grace is breathtaking. And that's what Paul is saying. Get back to that. Fix your eyes on that. Be rooted in him. Build on that. Walk and live for him in the same way you received him. By grace. And finally, he says this, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So he's, the big conclusion of this section of scripture is look at what Jesus did. Consider what he did. He brought you to life and forgave your trespasses. He, he took your record of debt on the cross. And lastly, he disarmed the powers. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He did more than that. He put them to open shame and he triumphed over them. What in the world is this about? Triumphing over powers, shaming rulers and authorities. How did Jesus shame rulers and authorities and triumph over powers? Well, this language is taken from uh, what would have been very common in the day in Rome of what happened when one army defeated another. So if one army goes in and defeats another army, uh, you don't tweet about it or, you know, Instagram we won or what, whatever. There's no internet news. There's no newspaper. There's no television news. So the way you found out that we won is when the army came back to town. And what they would do when they came back was they would take the, the soldiers, the f- fighters, the people that lost on the enemy, the enemy's army, and they would parade them through t- town to shame them putting them to open shame, to demonstrate we are powerful as a nation or a city, whatever it is. We are powerful over this army. And the way they ultimately demonstrated that was by the end of the parade of sort of beaten, bedraggled, uh, weak soldiers that lost the battle. At the end would be their king, who would then be taken to the center of town and ceremonially executed to demonstrate we are powerful over them, open shame. And so that's the background of what Jesus is talking about or what Paul is talking about here with Jesus. So in Jesus's case, what's, what he's being charged with is king of the Jews. But his revolt 
as it were. His, uh, his army was so weak. His army all disappeared the night he was arrested. His army was so weak and so inconsequential that Rome would have never taken Jesus and his army and paraded them through the great city of Rome and executed them. Rather, they just execute him on the outskirts of some area, you know, outside of Jerusalem, Golgotha. They put a sign over his head and kill him. It still makes a statement to anybody who walks by, Rome rules. Look at the king of the Jews and uh, you better not challenge us. We rule, we're powerful, and we're going to, in essence, triumph over your weak king. So that's what they think they're doing. Anyone who looked at Jesus would say, wow, the king of the Jews lost. The Romans are all powerful. We don't need a parade to see that. He was a weak king who only got a sign placed over him when he died. But just the opposite is happening. What God is telling us in this verse is that Jesus disarmed the rulers. Jesus defeated the authorities. Jesus on the cross is triumphing over the spiritual powers that oppose him. Listen to this, what this one author said. On the cross, God was stripping the armor off the rulers and authorities. Yes, he was holding them up to public contempt. God was celebrating his triumph over the principalities and powers, the very powers that thought it was the other way around. Paul never gets tired of relishing the glorious paradox of the cross, God's weakness overcoming human strength. God is defeating all the powers of the enemy on the cross through Jesus Christ. They think they are winning. The enemy thinks they are winning. The human authorities think they are winning. But what is really happening is that Jesus is defeating all the powers of evil and all the people that are empowered by those spiritual powers of evil because he will rise from the dead to defeat them all. And one day at his return, every enemy will be silenced. Every spiritual entity will be cast into a lake of fire created for sin. Satan and his demons, the scripture says, every enemy that thought they won, that opposed Jesus throughout history will be shown that Jesus is the one who triumphs. Jesus is the one who rules and reigns. And he wants to hold this out for the Colossians and say, why are you guys looking anywhere else? Don't look anywhere else. Look at the resurrected king who triumphed over all the powers of evil through his own weakness and the death and resurrection. So here's what it says. This passage teaches our debt of sin is silenced. Evil spirits and principalities and powers that animate human governments and institutions, they are defeated, they are shamed, they are stripped, they are executed, and Jesus lives. The powers that cause you fear and cause me fear, reminding that we aren't in control, those powers are defeated in the cross. And we can say, my life is in the hands of Christ and I am safe. Those powers can do nothing to me. Now, someone could take my life, but if that's the case, instant heaven, instant presence of Jesus, instant glory, so to speak, in a sense, being in his presence. We, he has defeated the powers and one day he will return and that will be clear. Powers of darkness that oppose us, powers of darkness that rule through rulers, uh, through governments. When they attack, when the, when the dark cloud of what's going to happen, the dark cloud of fear and worry rests over us, those powers are defeated in Christ and we want to renew our vision of him and what he's done. He's made us alive, he's canceled our debt, and he's defeated the powers. So here's how we're going to wrap up here. Uh, He calls us to two things in verse 6. He calls us to walk in him, 
Okay, so that's saying we don't need anything else. We walk in the grace that he's given us. Um, we, we ask him to empower our heart. We don't look for something to add to him or some secret. We trust in him, and we, we cultivate a greater understanding. We don't move on from the cross and resurrection. We create a greater understanding of that in our lives, and that's how we walk in him. And secondly, we abound in thanksgiving. We can measure how much we're living by grace if we consider how grateful are we. I believe this is a real measurement. In my life, it's a real barometer. On the days when I am primarily about complaint, what's not going right, my demands, my grumblings, my what should be that isn't be, those are the days that I am least in touch with what I deserve from a holy God and what he's given me by grace. When I'm demanding, those are the days I've lost all sight of verses 13 through 15. And I'm thinking, man, my sins are forgiven. I was dead, now I'm alive. He's defeated the powers. That is in the distance. What's in the front is what I want, what I demand, what I need, what must happen now. On the days where I'm sensing gratitude, when I'm aware of Jesus and I'm grateful for what he's done, I'm grateful to others, those are the days when I'm living this out, when he's big in my eyes. And I'm living with sort of a song in my heart, even in difficulty. Even when life's difficult, there can be an abounding in thanksgiving because I'm connected to him. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.